1: Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week, two regulars on this podcast. Austin Carp is the managing editor slash digital of Sports Business Journal. John Lewis is the Sports Media Watch founder and editor. No uh, elongated uh, intros for these two. We will jump right on for however many many minutes it will be. In terms of sports media talk, it has been an absolutely insane week when it comes to content in our space. And I am pleased to be joined by John Lewis and Austin Karp. Welcome back to the Sports Media Podcast.
2: Happy to be here. Thanks for having us.
1: All right. Let me start with you, John. um, And let's talk about the NBA Finals. As of our taping, we have data through Game 2. Game two's viewership was 11.9 million viewers, according to Nielsen. You can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I believe, and I think game one, if I remember, was 12 million. So we're talking about very, very steady and similar viewership. Broadcast peaked at 15.2 million viewers. My quick perspective on this is the following. This series so far, if you are the NBA you have to be overjoyed. There was, I think some thought and I, while I didn't necessarily agree with it and sort of put it out there, I think there was some reasonable thought that this viewership could be seriously challenged because of Denver and Miami, uh, two cities that are not among like, you know, the mega cities when it comes to viewership in this country and Denver had its own, obviously challenges and issues with their RSN stuff, etc. But, the numbers have been great and essentially equivalent to the Warriors and the Celtics. So as we look at this now with what we have, which are data points for two games, and by the time people listen to this, there will be a third game and maybe the viewership will be out of that as well. How do you see this, John? I think so far an unexpected success, that's how I read it. How do you read it?
3: I would agree with that. I think, you know, obviously this is not the matchup the NBA wanted in the final finals right. right particularly when you get to the conference finals and you have boston and la but uh, you look at the first two games game two viewership was 11.91 million last year game two celtics warriors 11.91 million the exact same so i think that is something nobody would have predicted last year's finals definitely underperformed expectations by a significant amount Seven. so that is a factor here in terms of the bar was not as high as it should have been, given it's Steph Curry versus Boston. But I think this time last year the interpretation of those numbers was that well, this is just where the NBA's ceiling is now. The NBA it gets a great matchup and it's going to be 11 million, 12 million. What this series shows is that you no, know, last year was not the ceiling. It may very well have just been a series that did not take off for some reason. And if the NBA can get 11.9, 12 million for Heat Nuggets, then maybe the next time you get a big matchup like Warriors, whoever, Lakers, whoever, then you'll get back to those 13, 14, 15 million viewer ranges that we saw maybe about 10 years ago.
1: Austin, uh, how do you read this so far? Again, I think John, John brings up a great point. I probably should have brought it up in that last year's viewership was disappointing. Because I would have thought um, that would have that would have popped more than it did. Where this year, I think, where maybe people were a little like, hmm, "How are the Nuggets and Heat going to play?" Well, we see the data so far. So far, they're they're playing uh, they're playing exactly what the Celtics Warriors mm-hmm. did last year. How do you see this?
2: I'm in agreement with John. I am. I was very surprised, especially coming out of Game One when it was a blowout and it was down just three percent from the opener for warriors celtics last year which i also agree with john was just very it underperformed there was a, a whole lot of expectations going into that series with the return of staff with, with the celtics on the rise and to have an, an unknown entity kind of with the nuggets getting into the finals this year and have it be on par with that series i think they are okay with it at nba headquarters and it does give them room for the future like john alluded to when they can develop more names Maybe milk the last out of, you know, some appearances by Steph, by LeBron, if they can make it back to the final. But they they really got to step up on the superstar development side and get some, you know, getting some names into into those finals. But I think they're happy. The numbers are are strong. I mean, they're not and they're not anywhere close to what those really bad Spurs driven finals were, you know, over a decade ago. They're staying far ahead of that. They're staying far ahead of the pandemic pandemic influenced finals in 2021, 2020. So, yeah, I think so far, so good for the NBA.
1: John, how much much should we factor uh, out-of-home viewership into what we're seeing right now?
3: Well, we should factor out-of-home into everything. Uh, It is playing a significant role in moving the needle. Uh, I think the viewership for the playoffs would have been strong without it. Uh, But, you know, obviously it's that extra touch that gets you to, you know, the highest since 1996. These might be, if you go back to the earlier rounds, the highest since 2011 without out of home. Out of home gives you the highest since 1996. So I do think that that is a big factor, but it's a big factor for everybody. And I think the most important thing for the NBA is, you know, instead of going back to, say, a Buck Suns, that's kind of what I thought this series would do. And that series averaged about 10 million viewers, 10.2 million. You know, that's not a horrible number or anything, but it puts you behind a World Series, for example. Ah, uh, this series, based on the first two games, despite a pretty rough matchup on paper, should be at or ahead of the World Series average. and uh, certainly uh, the kind of number that ensures that the overall postseason will end up at a five year high, at least
2: you know, richard, I, I will I will say about just about the out of home. I totally agree that it is important to denote that in anything, you know, pre-pandemic versus now. but it, not all things are not equal in the out of home universe. Like, college football, NFL, like those are just different animals when incorporating out-of-home versus something like the NBA finals. Like basketball doesn't get that level of lift that football does. Very few sports do. So I just think that's something to be considered when talking about, you know, the context of out-of-home.
3: Yeah, that's – John, I want uh, – Go ahead, please. Yeah, not to cut you off, but that's a great point yeah. uh, about the NBA versus the NFL, you know, the Super Bowl viewership. Out of home makes a pretty dramatic difference with that.
1: <laughs> yes, you it know? does.
3: If you take out of home out of the past few Super Bowls, you have some headlines for the NFL that would not be too flattering. But exactly. Um, I, I would also note, too, a very important factor with out of home, holidays. That's why the Masters is going to end up probably ahead of the NBA finals. It was on Easter this year. If you get a game seven of this finals and it's on Father's Day, you know, one of those holidays where people gather together, that could be a pretty significant uh, uh, ratings mover as well. So that's another factor. Out of home on those holidays that, you know, people gather together with their families to watch TV. That those, those That's a and big that's, factor.
2: That's such a funny change in the narrative too, because years ago before out of home, networks would complain about it falling on Easter because they weren't getting that bump. And now it's just a complete 180s.
3: Exactly, exactly.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it's sort of like, I, I, I get that, um, I sort of get mocked by, you uh, know, um, the uh, robert simon tv grim reaper and those boys <laughs> like for uh, my uh, my sports viewership uh, uh sort of tweets about uh you know oh man adam silver has got a wheelbarrow of cash coming to him listen i know that no singular data point has any impact on um nba rights negotiations. You know i'm not an idiot that said you do look at this stuff john And you see that they're holding up against last year's viewership, which, again, are two glamour teams in the sport. They're up in uh, people 18 or 34, like that demo um, this year, in terms of the finals. They're winning, obviously, every single demo from every night's viewership. And this whole notion somehow that, like, you know, from a couple years ago, at least those who were saying it that somehow the NBA has like uh, lost this gigantic chunk of audience because people are so spooked by the fact that they have a social justice message on their court. It's all turned out to be bullshit. And so I look at like what Silver and company are going to have to be dealing with, you know, over the next 16 months. And I get like you know, advertising media spendings down a little bit, and we'll see what happens with the economy. But man. I look at the sport and I'm like they're getting double minimum in terms of a media rights increase and, and I think they got a great property heading forward if you're going to take the longitudinal look at the the NBA um, how do you see this in terms of just uh, the attraction for for the media buyers that are that are that are coming in the next 16 months
3: well I mean you just look at the fact that the NBA won so many nights on TV throughout the playoffs. I mean, obviously in the young demographics, you know, that's not new for the NBA, but it's been over the past five years, for example, the NBA has gone from, okay, it can win the night 18 to 49 every night, 18 to 34. It won multiple nights in the playoffs in overall viewership, which is so much harder because then you're including all the other demographics that might not necessarily watch a a first or second round NBA playoff game. And, you know the ability to win the night on all of television. You know, I mean, that is something that has value. So I think for the the league, I, I think it is a very hot property. The other side of that is, well, this postseason, how sustainable is the level of viewership we've seen? This is a postseason where LeBron and Steph both made the playoffs. There's no guarantee. Agree. There's no guarantee those two will ever make the playoffs in the same year again. It hadn't happened since 2018. Uh, not only did they both make the playoffs, they both won a series. Then they played each other, which guaranteed that one of them got to the conference finals. On the other side of the bracket, the Celtics play a six-game series in the first round and then two seven-game series. Really, the only negative thing that happened for the league this whole postseason was that Miami-Denver was the finals matchup. So this is not going to be the way it is in just a few years because LeBron going to be out of the league, retired. Steph is going to be retired. And, you know, it's going to depend on that next group of stars, you know, and uh, there's a lot riding, I would think, on Victor Wimbanyama, because I don't think you can depend on Ja or Zion Williamson going forward.
1: Yeah, I mean, also, I'll let you sort of weigh in on this, and then we'll we'll get out of this topic. The one thing the NBA has proven, at least historically, is that new stars do emerge. Like, that's just the history of the league. You know, everybody thought the league is going to be in trouble, you know, post-Jordan, and then Kobe steps in, and then... You know, what's going to happen when Kobe's gone and, you know, LeBron and Steph have sort of carried the mantle. So I'm not really, um, I, I don't think I'd be too worried about that. And then the other thing when it comes to the meteorite stuff and, you know, I've had business people on and this has obviously been reported by, you know, 50 million people. Um, the rights holders, the current rights holders, ESPN, Warner Brothers Discovery, they ha- they're the incumbents. They're going to have their negotiating window where they can talk, but... There are a lot of places that are going to stalk this, in my opinion, including Amazon, who I think has a real serious interest in uh, getting part of this NBA rights. You've read about NBC's uh, potential interest in this. We'll sort of see, you know, how the sort of economy shakes out and how serious NBC could be. And ESPN absolutely is going to uh, retain because the NBA is just too important to their direct-to-consumer uh, model heading forward. There's no way that ESPN will not have the NBA. You can. You know, I'll eat my words if that somehow doesn't come to fruition. But uh, trust me, I, I'm very confident going to Vegas on that one. So Austin, to me, I think I think this league's in a great place for for a pop. The NFL is already done. That money's been spent. This is the next big meteorites deal that sort of comes to market and the biggest one for a long time. Uh, well, I guess college football playoffs, too. Um, I don't know. To me, they're in a really good position. But, you know, I'm also an NBA fan. I concede that.
2: No, I I think they're in an incredibly good position. I think they're going to make a pile of
1: cash. I
2: would also take that trip with you to Vegas and place the bet on ESPN retaining that. And, you know, I I think Warner Brothers Discovery is also in a a strong place to remain an incumbent. I think there'll be some sort of over-the-top package carved out of, you know, the leftover local rights that were out there, you know, for, for a streamer, whether it's an Apple or an Amazon or whoever you know the usual suspects being the-
1: I think a pl- I think a playoff round is coming for them too by the way but we'll see if that plays I out. mean the
2: playoffs are just so consistent for these media partners I mean if you look over the past decade like they they're hovering around 4 million viewers you know late in the year when there's just not much on TV that's incredibly strong for these for ESPN for for TNT and there's just not much on and especially as you see a lot of these over the top streaming platforms they're cutting back on original content. So there really isn't yeah. a lot on right now. There isn't a lot of new programming coming on in late May and early June on these streamers. So the NBA and its playoffs, and especially the finals, is falling in an incredibly I, I, a, a good place in the calendar for them. When they're producing big numbers, you can pretty much put it in ink these days that an NBA finals game is going to win the night across all of the TV landscape. That's important for these companies. That's important to hang their hat on. They like claiming that win. And yeah, I, I think the NBA is set up to do incredible well in their next media rights round.
1: John, I want to uh, go to you. I, my, the podcast before you guys, I had uh, Chad mum, who's the executive producer of full swing, the Netflix series on uh, the PGA tour and Kevin van Valkenberg, who's the editorial director of no laying up. So we did about 70 minutes on the, uh, the PGA um, and live, you know, if you don't want to call it a merger, you know, and call it the Saudis basically buying golf in America. Uh, I wanted to focus with you and Austin on just how you saw this in terms of a, um, a television kind of media rights story. Um, what's really going to be interesting to me is that the, the PGA Tour, I think, seem, seemingly is going to push to its golfers and push to its executives that... Everybody coming back together ultimately will uh, make the television rights, which come up, I think, in 2030, that much more valuable. More viewers are going to want to see everybody together. You know, maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. There prob- There is a counter argument to be made. Would all this turn off any kind of viewers? Would any viewers be um, just disgusted by the fact that they use like 9 families to uh, play a moralizing card and then sort of just dis- dis- discarded them when the the money came in. Um, so that's a couple things for you to just sort of think about off the top of your head, John, how do you, on, from a media perspective, not necessarily the story perspective, how do you see the, the PGA or PGA tour um, agreeing to partner with live?
3: Well, the only really good thing about it, I think is getting all those live golfers back on tour. Uh, presumably they're going to be stronger fields, now, of course, the other side of that is the PGA also already made the decision to go with those elevated events to create stronger fields to begin with, kind of had the negative impact of devaluing the other tournaments, which I think you're seeing in the ratings. As far as down the line, the next media rights deal, I mean, I don't know. I I, I feel like all of this talk over the past year is kind of, you know, been a little bit like rearranging the deck chairs uh just from the standpoint of i I don't see golf's audience growing particularly significantly uh in in this post tiger era i don't really think the combination of the pga and live is going to change that and i do think as you said uh that there will be people who are you know a lot of people took out very specific moral stances against live whether you're talking about people who are watching golf or people in the game, media people, they're going to have to make a decision whether they want to be associated with the PGA Tour because that's going to be its own level of hypocrisy for them. So I think there could be some viewers who tune out.
1: Austin, uh, your place of business, um, the Sports Business Journal, you guys do a lot of golf-related uh, reporting. You obviously have golf people coming in to uh your conferences and stuff so uh, you're positioned in to me in an interesting place in terms of how you think this will impact the the media rights uh partnerships i mean
2: you want to never mind the pj you want you want to project out any media right field in 2030 if you know what that looks like god bless you like just uh, well the way things are changing so fast in the media media ecosystem projecting out seven years i mean gosh I, i'm having trouble projecting out one, two, three years on what things are going to look like for a lot of these places. So the PGA Tour does have that lockdown. I want to know what the relationships are going to be like between the tour and its media partners coming out of this because they were kind of taken by surprise. And I think it was Ben Strauss who tweeted out yesterday that he had a, you know, a chat with a media executive from one of those networks. And it's like, oh, do you guys consider yourselves a partner now of the Saudi government? And their executive was like, oh, I'm not sure. So there are a lot of geopolitical implications to think about now, business, sponsorship-wise. I think there's a lot to play out. I'm not sure that Jay Monahan, you know, retains his position in the long term. So we might be talking about a new media rights deal with a new commissioner. Who's that going to be? Is it somebody who's media-minded? I think there are so, so many questions left on what, the, you know, the PGA Tour is going to look like seven years from now. We also have you know stuff that they're trying with tomorrow golf, which is you know the thing backed by Tiger and Rory, which is kind of aimed at getting yep. some of those younger viewers. obviously it's not you know tournament golf, but they're trying to develop more of a following with you know these younger generations but John, what brought up a really good point? the elevated status events are doing kind of well you know they're they're seeing some upticks uh some you know you had a tournament like uh, this past week, and I think the memorial was up big i can't even remember if that's an elevated status event, but um he is correct in saying that some of these other ones, these marginalized tournaments are not seeing that sort of lift because they're just not having the field um, that these other events have.
1: Uh, I want to, this story is breaking interestingly enough as we're taping this. So I didn't prep you guys for this. So you're just going to have to, you're going to have to roll with the roll with the punches, pure organic podcasting, Austin and John. It um, Leo Messi, uh, based on a lot of credible soccer journalists who are in the transactions business, um, looks to be signing or heading to MLS and Miami. Um, Obviously, you're looking at the most famous soccer player in the world, or number two if you think it's Cristiano Ronaldo, coming to the American Domestic League. Everybody on this uh, podcast knows about the MLS Apple deal. Um, so far, I think the numbers have been, you know, not great. They're not going to release it proprietarily, but I feel like anecdotally, that's a pretty good feel. And now you inject that with the world's most famous global soccer star. This has the potential. I mean, again, I'm not gonna make any predictions, but if if Apple MLS needed a catalyst, like this is the dream catalyst Right here, so John, your sort of first impressions as to what kind of impact Messi could have on um, on people being interested now in MLS Apple.
3: Well, I'm, you know, Messi is obviously the biggest star to ever go to MLS, but you know, we've seen this happen before. We saw it with Beckham. uh, Uh, You know, I mean, to me, I, I just I'm a little skeptical of the idea that that's going to really turn MLS around as far as becoming something that really takes off, maybe is equivalent to a Premier League or the other international soccer leagues that do better in this country than MLS does. I'm not bullish. I'll put it that way. You you never know. Maybe Messi will have that kind of an impact, but I I don't see it happening.
1: That's interesting cuz I'm going to go the other way. Again, I'm not I'm not saying MLS <laughs> Apple, you know, all of a sudden becomes the NFL or something like that. But I I I do think Austin that people will sign up a, a, at least more casual fans than than maybe John is anticipating. Uh, again, mm-hmm. Leo Messi coming to MLS at 35 does not make MLS the NFL or college football or the NBA, but I I don't discount his star power. I mean, we are talking about It's not just another guy, but the most famous soccer player in the world who conceivably still has some gas left in the tank. I mean, the guy just won the World Cup with Argentina not too long ago. So I'm probably not as skeptical on it as John is, but, you know, he's got the Beckham sort of history lesson. And while that was very impactful for MLS, it's not like soccer became the most popular sport in the United States after Beckham came here. How do, how do oh, but Like
2: say? ESPN did a really good job when Beckham came in of putting him on ESPN airways and prime time slots and really giving him exposure on that network. I think MLS kind of made its bed with Apple and I don't know what, we're not going to really have the data to say like it really drove that sort of interest. I mean, are they going to give us information on how many more signups? I mean, <laughs> is that the data we're going to get? I think you're going to see it outside.
1: We'll get that. We'll get that data if they had a million subs. Yeah, yeah I, we'll I'll get see, it. But we're you know? not
2: going to see what the viewership is for that <laughs> right. game. You know, when, right. when if they right. put that, you know, Leo Messi is debuting on Apple TV. We're, I don't know whether we're going to see that number. And that's just the deal that MLS made. I think you'll see it in road attendance and home attendance for Inter Miami is they're opening up a new stadium in the coming years. Um, anywhere he goes, like the road team is imidi- immediately going to sell out. I think, where a benefit you might see is in some of these, you know, if Inter Miami can make or do well in either, you know, the, these Concacaf leagues that are set up or the tournaments that are set up between MLS and Liga MX that are coming up, you know, those games, especially if they're going to be on, you know, what where they air on Spanish language TV, I think it's on Univision. Those are going to get incredible numbers. Particularly on something like Univision, Unimos. I mean, that will eat. I'm guessing rival or, or a lot of popular Liga MX games, which are the most watched soccer matches in the U.S.
1: Give me uh, that Inter Milan, uh, Inter Milan. Give me that. In, give me Inter Milan. Give me that Inter Miami EXO uh, against uh, Barcelona. You and
2: put Inter Miami. You know,
1: put that on. Some, put yeah. Put that on some some free to air TV. No, that you that you can put Inter Miami
2: versus Club America on Univision, and you know with the simulcast on Teudani. That's yes. gonna be a pretty solid number in my mind.
1: I agree. And by and by the way, just so everybody knows, there is no chance uh, Apple is gonna. Like somehow put Messi's game, and on it's
2: also day. not going to be on 0 Fox. They're not going to let Fox have that. Yeah, especially not the first game. Not let Fox have that as their simulcast game that they are. That
1: no shit. Ch- no, they're going to protect yeah. that investment as much as possible. You you want to have Messi as much as possible behind yeah. your paywall because that's your only shot to get people. And, I'm sure Fox wants so, it and that's the uh-huh. only way they're going to get
2: above three hundred and fifty thousand viewers for that game.
1: Well, listen. If Fox wants that game, then then Fox should give MLS whatever you know, thirty five million bucks. Or I'm just making that up, but yep. you know what I'm saying. Like that that's insane. Apple Apple's a smart company. That, that you're not. That's these are your Glengarry leads. You that's joke, but maybe old, there is maybe, some like,
2: sort of negotiation that is struck for the debut, just the debut game, where Fox does you know give them some sort of compensation. To have it on Apple, I Fox. would,
1: but why would you do that if you're app? That would be crazy
2: to give the first game away if you're app. We'll see. I also don't see, I don't see mm-hmm. the John, MLS you, John you have an opinion? Uh, on I don't this? see the MLS uh, Apple deal getting to the end of the contract,
1: anyways. Oh, I, I, that's an interesting observation. What about you, John? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I
3: could see MLS, you know, maybe putting some pressure on Apple to say we want this one to be on Big Fox. I also think that to the point you were making before, if you want any kind of data on how Messi is impacting the popularity of MLS, he's going to need to play on Fox. That's the only way you're going to have that. So I wouldn't be surprised at all. I mean, I, I know Apple obviously wants to grow the game, but you know, it might actually benefit them to have that first Messi match in front of as large an audience as possible, get a sampling of people who aren't subscribed, and then maybe if they like what they see, then they subscribe to watch his next match that's on Apple exclusively.
1: No, you, Mike Mulvihill's two favorite podcasts, are YouTube you two now. Look at that. All right. Um, NHL viewership. Awesome. I'm going to start with you. Uh, I saw the Game 1 number uh, as we are... Uh maybe game two is out already, but I'll work under game one. It is. Okay, so you can help me. Game one averaged two point seven five million combined across TNT, TBS, and True TV. What did what did Game game Two two did
2: did 2.45 million on Monday night, which I mean pretty much the same script. I mean it was gonna be down from ABC last year, and that's a number across TNT, TBS, True TV. You take out those pandemic influence years, 2020, 2021. It's the lowest for a game two since I think Ducks Senators on Versus in, in 2007. And that includes a number of game twos that were on NBCSN during that time frame. So it, it's, it's not a very popular series. And I think we knew that coming into the conference finals that whoever made it out of this, wasn't, it wasn't necessarily going to be a draw for the NHL, particularly airing on, right. on cable TV for the first time since, you know, in, in its entirety since the 90s.
1: So let me stick with you on this, Austin, and John. You can weigh in, obviously. Um, you know the 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 series is what it is. It has it's a regional sport to start with, and then this is a really regionalized appeal. Given that Florida's Florida doesn't really, I don't think the Panthers have a fan base outside of Florida. No, no disrespect to that team. Vegas has a little bit of an appeal because they're still a relatively mm-hmm. new team. You know, Vegas is an interesting city, but the handwriting was on the wall on this one and then you add the cable element to it and like none of this viewership matters i know that warner brothers discovery is going to push like to the hilt because this is their only like pr storyline that it's the most watched cable series in you know however many years but like it, i can't i'm am i not correct by saying that this is an example of gary batman taking money over reach this does not this series does the opposite of growing the game Is that a fair statement, Austin? I think that
2: there's a little bit of that MLS angle in what the NHL did here. Yeah. Like if they wanted that rights tick up, the rights fee uptick that they got, which they got, which Bettman got for them. Yeah. You had to take a little bit of this pain putting the championship on cable TV. And I think the NCAA had to do that too, when it started putting the final four and national championship on Warner Brothers discovery networks as well. So it's just, we see this year, you know, over the course of the years, when the college football championship shifted to ESPN. Like it's just every sport kind of takes their licks at some point, you know, except for the Super Bowl, <laughs> for now.
1: John, first time the Stanley Cup Finals aired entirely on cable uh, since being on ESPN in 1994. Uh, you know, you've written about viewership uh, as long as anybody I've known. I'm sure you would have anticipated this one being down and you know again my read is just that like batman and company took the money and they got to live with the fact that this thing is essentially going to be a view oh yeah
3: and i think that agreement is going to look worse in about four years this is the first of three cup finals on cable in 2027 i can only imagine what the cable distribution is going to be at that point so you know it's going to look worse with time TNT's actually done a great job with the NHL. They've been a tremendous partner. I agree. But, you know, when you give a full finals to cable, you are restricting the the audience that you could have. I think the next deal, I would be very surprised if the next deal included a cup final on cable TV.
1: John, just for your ballparking of this, okay, Like, uh, um, what do you think the viewership is if I could, if it's the same cable Stanley Cup final on TV, TBS, Turner, uh True TV. Uh, TNT True TV. If I gave you uh, Chicago versus Philly or Boston, I, I realized that um uh well actually that series could exist, but you know, I was just making up like two traditional power or you know, this this series could not exist, but play it out just for purposes. Rangers versus Boston. Well, how many more million would be? I mean it would be a
3: that? tremendous draw. Uh I think easily over, you know, th- I mean, I'm going to say over 4 million per game, at least, you know, I, I think the cable factor is a big one, but so the,
1: so, is the te- so you're saying the teams well, are, a big I factor, mean, right? just
3: this postseason alone, TNT had a bigger audience for Florida against Boston in game seven in the first round, that was 3 million viewers compared to 2.8 and 2.4 million for the first two games of the cup final. So, I mean, if you put the right teams in there, you know, you're going to get, bigger numbers than that uh and obviously if you go back you mentioned chicago and philly chicago and boston chicago philly 2010 on versus 3.6 million 3.1 million for games three and four chicago and boston 2013 on nbcsn four million for games two and three on uh on, on on that network of course nbcsn back then in more homes today than than tnt and the rest of those, but uh, certainly not as established a network.
2: And Connor McDavid playing up in Edmonton. Uh, John, I, I, I'm ahead, saying also. Connor playing up in Edmonton is, you know, if you're a true hockey fan, I'm sure you love it. I've been playing in a small market like that, but it's it's a crusher for some of these numbers. And
1: no, you wish Connor McDavid. You can was have in, that uh, Wayne whatever. Gretzky you, type move yeah. to the LA
2: Kings one day, where he goes to an original six, and you know, th- I think that'd be a really big moment for the NHL down the road.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I don't, don't see, see it. it but Connor Bedard, Connor Connor Bedard will yeah. be in Chicago, and he's sort of the next like uh, transcendent prospect. So that'll be interesting. Three years down the road, Blackhawks turning around. Um, you do, you you may have this transcendent figure there. Uh, we'll do this one quick before we end on MLB viewership. Uh, John Lewis, um, as someone who's uh, followed television and cable, uh, cable television for a long time, even beyond sports uh we're talking today on the day that Chris Licht was removed by David Zasloff as the head of CNN um is like CNN fixable in terms of a viewership play I'm not talking about what they are as a journalistic institution there's obviously still great journalists at CNN and there's obviously a lot of uh, just like sports there's a lot of uh, a, a lot of people who are just um uh, hot takers basically but just you know in, in the political arena but CNN has some real issues to me, John. In terms of one, the cable universe is dropping, so so that's that's the market forces. And then secondly, they 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 there's the middle lane in terms of news to me just means you're alienating everybody. There really is not a middle lane right now. So uh, not that I think Chris Lick made a good decision by being profiled by the Atlantic. In his own words, ended up biting him. Uh, it was pretty obvious once that that thing came out he was done um uh, but i just think cnn as a as a as a viewership job is a is a pretty tough if not imp- maybe impossible lift
3: well i issue. mean i i would agree i i don't think there's i mean cnn's ratings are only going to be really strong if horrible things are happening right and the reality of the matter is you need things to be whether it's uh, covid or all the Weird dramas in the Trump administration, or the uh, January 26, twenty twenty one attack and uh, on the Capitol. All those things. That's where people turn. The expression is "turn on CNN." Right? Nobody ever says "turn on MSNBC" or "turn on Fox News" when there's an emergency happening. But if you take the emergency out of it, what do you have? And you know, CNN has the same exact problem that it had. You know, when it was doing the Malaysian plane. I mean, frankly, that's the same problem that it had when they were getting rid of Aaron Brown and replacing him with Anderson Cooper 18 years ago, right? There's just not really a compelling reason to sit down in your house and watch CNN unless there's an emergency, which makes sense. That's, a, that's the reason you typically will watch the news. That's why Fox and MSNBC, they are in the constant state of emergency with the breaking news banner on constantly. If you're not doing that I, I just don't see any reason why someone would tune in.
1: What about you, Austin? I mean, you are somebody who like has tracked when like uh, you know there's a presidential debate and where that ranks like within the uh, the top fifty, top hundred sports list. We all saw the impact in 2020 and 2016 that those presidential elections had on sports, but uh, you know I, I'm not going to get into the. Like, the licked profile and sort of his philosophy and all that stuff. But I, I, I think in many ways, like as John said, sort of CNN in some ways is, um, is a viewership story. That's only going one way. Like I, I, I see that story. I see CNN viewership just slowly and slowly dropping. I don't ever see it really increasing over time. Although obviously, my caveat would be that would obviously depend on who's the president of the United States, and as John said, that would certainly depend on like how much calamity is like existing on a. Yeah, daily that basis. was a
2: daily calamitous thing for CNN and all the big three news cable networks from 2016 to 2020, and you know I think Lick kind of put a lot of, or I I I don't think it was the Atlantic profile. I, I think it was more the debate, and he put a lot of his chips into that. That debate that he, you know, the, the Republican one that he put on CNN, and it didn't really do that well. If that thing had drawn over 10 million viewers, I think we're having a different conversation, exactly. You know, I'm a numbers guy, that thing only did what like three million? I, it, three, right? I was really yeah. stunned about how ridiculously low, the audience
1: yeah. And then I saw the Nikki Haley town hall did oh. under a million. So all these things are uh, forget about anything else, these things just aren't being watched,
2: no. and they, that I think that was the death knell for him as far as leadership goes. That was a terrible bet because the the juice was not worth the squeeze and the negative PR that you got coming out of that for just airing it in the first place, you better get 10 million viewers if you're going to use that sort of political capital.
1: Yeah, and if you're going to alienate your staff, it, it better be for like 20 million, right? Not, not for, not for three. If we're just going to be totally. Well, if you go
3: that. back to 2015, when Trump started running, you had 24, 22, 23 million, you know, th- that was beating NBA finals games from the previous month.
1: Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. Great, great point. eBay motors is here for the ride.
0: Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love.
4: That's com slash therapy60. All right,
1: final stuff here, Austin. I go to you because um, I read this in one of your uh, front and center CARP newsletters, and that is MLB viewership for the first third of the season is down. Now, as you wrote well in your, your piece, there's all sorts of caveats here. Like We haven't had a lot of Yankees-Red Sox games yet. Um, obviously, later in the year, you'll get some stuff that juices it up. But at least on a national level at this point, baseball's down, correct? Which is which would be a surprise just given how great the games have been because of the pace Yeah, of I mean, everything
2: we've written about so far this season has been how the RSN situation is a disaster. And, you know, we haven't looked at the viewership yet there to see how that is doing. But, yeah, on the national side, I was a little surprised to even see, especially given that the length of games are down. The viewership is not responding yet. Uh, Sunday Night Baseball down, Fox down big, FS1 down big. You know, uh, one bright spot in their non-exclusive games, though, was TBS. And I think it was really big for them in this new media rights package switching from Sunday afternoons to Tuesday nights. They've actually seen a very big uptick in their viewership these first two seasons, having it on that window versus Sunday afternoon. But yeah, like not having any Yankees, uh, any Yankees telecast at all for Sunday Night Baseball today. And I know they're going to be in the middle of a three-week run here with uh, with the Yankees now, and that'll help boost it up a little bit. But, yeah, they're going to have to really turn it around in the back end and, and get some popular teams in there, not helping that the Red Sox are in the cellar. So.
1: What about you, John? Um, again, it uh, it's early, and usually the ESPN numbers for Red Sox-Yankees oh. uh, always will be juiced. As, as Austin said, you know, We'll see what happens with the Red Sox, but the AL East is so competitive and I expect the Sox to at least be there. So I would expect if we had this conversation September 1st, it's probably a different, just my guess is it's a different conversation. It could be.
2: It absolutely could be. But to start the season uh, down.
1: John, what do you think?
3: Well, I think the point Austin made is a good one, which is that ESPN has a lot of Yankees games coming up this month. Um, Yankees Dodgers just on Sunday did not do all that well. But that's on baseball i don't know why they would have chosen to put that on the weekend of the nba finals uh you know that was an a thing to do you have all of july all of august to yourself to put that kind of a game there but um i think having the yankees red sox games is good uh and uh you know ultimately with baseball baseball is kind of a little bit like uh, cnn to an extent right You know, well, maybe not. That's actually, let me not insult baseball like that. But I think baseball situation is the ratings are what they are. It's not a growth property. It does not have the young demographics necessary for you to feel positive about, you know, the trend long term. But, you know, you can still get respectable numbers with it. 2.2 million Saturday night on Fox, 1.6 for Yankees Dodgers Sunday night. Uh, Nothing special, but uh, certainly... It, it, it's there's value to it. Uh, there, there's a, a tremendous amount of of value. It's you're not you're not it's it's basically like the vegetables of sports TV. It's not going to you know it's not the main course. It's not going to excite anybody, but you know it's it still does well enough.
2: but I, I think the lower national numbers, I think, is one key reason why you see Rob Manfred have a different approach to the RSN situation than Adam Silver does. Because I think the, having the local rights, having more local rights under the auspices of the league and having them have control within maybe their streaming platform on MLB.TV means more to MLB than it does to the NBA, which has a stronger national product. So they, I think they really, really need to monetize those midweek local games more so than the NBA does. Good
1: take. Uh, is there anything else you guys want to uh, get off your chest before we get out of here? John,
3: well, just uh, just quickly on that baseball point, you know, Major League Baseball decided that this was going to be its approach. They were going to prioritize their local broadcasts over the national, and so you don't have a great national schedule of games. You don't have, you know, the, the schedule is not created for TV like the NBA's is or for national TV anyway. So a lot of this is baseball's own decision. They could have easily had more exclusive games on weeknights which always do pretty well instead of having TBS, you know, coexisting or being blacked out locally. It's a reason why ESPN didn't continue on with Monday and Wednesday night baseball and I'll tell you one thing, I will never understand why baseball was willing to give Apple and Peacock exclusive windows but not ESPN on Monday and Wednesday nights. It just didn't seem like a necessary thing to me. And yeah, okay, money is the probable answer, but I would imagine the ESPN would have paid pretty well to get exclusivity for their Monday and Wednesday night games. Yeah,
1: game. I, I I you know the, the, you can draw a line between all of this strategically to why MLB's players are not as popular nationally as like say the NBA, but they've made their decision to um to be more of a regional play for each of the the franchises versus to really like, you know, get um Mike Trout or Choi Otani or Mookie Betts, like, you know, on the minds of people in Boston as they are in those respective cities. That's that's a choice. But baseball, as great of a sport it is to watch, that sport makes it so hard for you to be a fan nationally, just given how much you would have to pay to to watch all the games of a particular favorite team of yours, particularly if a favorite team of yours isn't in your market. Um, it's just, it's unbelievable. Um, John Lewis is the founder and editor of sports media watch an absolutely essential product. Can't recommend it highly enough. Austin Carp, managing editor slash digital of sports business journal, sports business journal slash daily. Of course, again, as invaluable as it always is, uh, Austin and John, I appreciate you coming on today. Crazy, uh, Crazy couple days in sports with everything that's been going on. And uh, and thanks for making time for the Sports Media Podcast.
2: Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for having me.
1: All right, back in the studio, my thanks to John Lewis and Austin Karp. Always great to catch up with those guys and uh, fun conversations. It's always fun for me to talk uh, for Sports Media Roundtable uh, uh, with people who are as interested in it as I am. Um, as I recited during the podcast, um, you can listen to um, the uh, the PGA Golf a PGA tour live golf merger podcast that I did with Chad mum and Kevin van Valkenberg. That's in the archives. Uh, now check that out. There's a really good conversation, Beth Mowins and Michelle Smith on women's softball a sports media success story. Had a big tennis podcast with Caitlin Thompson. Jeff Van Gundy was on this podcast recently. Mark Shapiro, the head of endeavor, uh, did stuff on Pat McAfee's move to ESPN with Brian Curtis of the ringer and Ben Strauss of the Washington post. Uh, again, head to the archives. There should be some stuff you like. If you like this, please leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That is how this podcast continues. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. Thanks to everybody at Odyssey for their support, and thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.